Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. The Ewing Trust is a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust Endowment that allows for the development and presentation of a wide range of events and projects for the benefits of Fitzroy residents and visitors. Earlier this year, Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust recognised International Women's Day with a talk by author Dr Lee Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a Russian-born, Israeli-Australian author of five books and the editor of two anthologies. Her latest book, Imperfect, How Our Bodies Shape the People We Become, explores how the bodily appearance can impact our lives and what we can do about it. The book is a mixture of memoir and decade-long research and has been met with critical acclaim. This is an edited recording. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming on this very unusually sunny day. <laughs> you know, soon summer finishes, then the sun comes out, of course. Um, so, um, first of all, happy International Women's Day to us all forthcoming International Women's Day. And it's really lovely to see men in the audience as well. My book, Imperfect, is actually um, written about men as well. But because it uh, focuses on appearance, we all know that appearance is still a more urgent topic for women, and we'll talk about why, uh, although I suspect you all can tell me stories why. But I want to sort of, um, but I will be sort of talking about men too, because I think increasingly, and I'm looking at my stepson, for example, who is 25 now, and his friends, and increase, and also, for, of course, from my research, increasingly young men also feel a lot of pressure to appear a certain way. Um, and also older men, actually, in our AG society. With this author talks, I kind of take an opportunity to own a little bit the art of interview because when Imperfect came out last year, I um, did quite a lot of media interviews and often uh, I, were asked, I was asked very good questions, but in a very short uh, time span. And I remember one of the most sort of difficult um, times was I was on TV, uh, you know, morning TV, so it's all very fast anyway, and I had seven minutes, which is a lot for morning TV, as you know. And the interviewers mostly asked me about my own life, um, and I told them, and then they realized that time is running out, and the, the interviewer very quickly asked me, kind of not even really asked even, but more made a statement, said, so, Lee, how do you feel about your scars now? You probably really accept them now, don't you? And I was left hanging, because it's a very, first of all, it was a statement, but also because it was a very kind of tricky question, which, I'll, which I really couldn't sort of pro- properly do justice in the, in the half minute that I was left with. But today, I'm, I hope I'll sort of unpack with you a little bit more this complex relationship between um, bodies and our lives, our psyches, our choices that we make, all sorts of things. What I want to say first is that when I write, my I never start writing because I have a message to convey or because I have a lesson to teach or anything grand like this because I just don't have this sort of self-importance. And also, if I have already a message, a ready message, an instant message that I'm 
why to write a book? You know, it takes about two, three, five, ten years to write a book. If I know what I'm going to say, how boring is that? I won't be able to persevere. <laughs> so I only really write for purely selfish reasons. I write because I have some kind of questions to answer, questions that are really urgent to me. So, uh, and, and then what I hope usually when I write books like this, so all my books, doesn't matter if it's fiction or nonfiction, they're all sort of like a quest where I try to find out something that is really important to me. And then I hope that as a byproduct, what I'll find, or my quest itself, sometimes the quest itself is much more interesting actually than the answers. Uh, so I always hope that the byproduct will be what other people will relate to what I'm looking at. Um, so with Imperfect, my question was, uh, the question at the heart of this book was, um, how can appearance shape our lives? So purely what we look like, not body generally, how it functions or, um, you know, what it performs or the body language, but the purely physical appearance. I call it in the book, body surface. And... The other question that I had was, if this shaping of the body is not in line with our design, is not in line with what we want, what can we do about it? So I didn't set out to write kind of self-help book, because I'm not into self-help books, but I did want to sort of try and ponder those questions in a non-self-helpish book, I hope. To do this, I turned to the genre of creative nonfiction. Are you familiar with this term? No, which is really interesting because is anybody at all here familiar with the term creative nonfiction? Yeah, one person. Fantastic. <laughs> the thing about creative nonfiction is we all read these books, but we just don't know what they're called because in Australia, unlike in America, this genre still, um, I don't know, just uh, didn't sort of make the new made the news. But what Helen Garner writes, for example, House of Grief. Um, creative nonfiction is when you write about real events and real people but you use tools of fiction. So you pay attention to language, to voice. You can use uh, scene setting, dialogue, etc., etc. So I decided to use to write about appearance and how it can shape our lives and what we can do about this using the genre of creative nonfiction because in creative nonfiction, the beauty of this genre is you can actually do whatever you want. You don't have the whole, you don't have to sort of build the whole architecture of a novel. You just go in and snap whatever you snatch, whatever you want. So I, I looked at philosophy. I was especially interested in what Plato had to say about appearance because um, I focused only on appearance in the West, just because, not because it's not interesting about what happens outside of West, but because I had to, you know, contain the book to manageable parameters so I can put it in a bag. <laughs> uh, so I looked at philosophy, I looked at Plato, I looked at history, I looked at um, literature, and I especially looked at popular narratives because I think the popular ways that we sort of uh, the popular stories that we tell really shape how we think about things. So I looked at uh, popular fiction. I looked at TV series like Outlander or Game of Thrones. I looked at um, the stories we tell on uh, reality TV shows, the stories we tell through the lyrics, through, you know, popular songs, etc., etc. But really what frames this entire book is, um, well, this is me. <laughs> When I was yeah one and a half years old, 
So this book sounds very sort of amorphous, but it's actually a narrative story. So it's all framed by memoir, by, it's not a memoir as such because it has other research, but it's, my memoir is what frames the whole story. And this is my story of having scars. So I have a lot of scars on my body, uh, more than an average person. I mean, I know scars are common, now I know, but um, having dedicated 10 years of my life to researching. <laughs> but uh, not many people have as many scars as I have. And all my life, sort of my in my youth, I was growing, hearing such uh, well-meaning platitudes as beauty skin deep, don't judge book by appearance, all bodies are good bodies. And all these sayings came from very good intentions. I really appreciate this. Because people want sort of equality and justice, and that's what I want to. But it didn't work for me. It was quite actually disturbing for me because all these sort of um, accepted wisdoms, what they were telling me was that what I was perceiving in my life was wrong. Because what I was perceiving is that my scars really marked me. They changed me a lot. They affected how I lived, how I loved how I, what kind of work I did. Of course, how I felt about myself, which is the body image part, which actually less interested me when I was writing the book, and I'll tell you soon why. Um, and it's also affected um, my even deeper what kind of person I became. And I'll give you an example. Because I spent... I spent a lot of part, a big part of my life covering my scars, hiding them, having been bullied at school and realized that it's in my favor not to show my scars. This secretiveness slowly kind of seeped into other areas of my life. First, I stopped even telling people that I had scars, not just showing them, but actually telling. And later, I became secretive in other sort of areas in my life. Um, but the story of my scars, and that's why I have this sort of photo of myself when I little, and I don't have my scars yet, started even before they began. As we all know, probably, it's another platitude which is partly true, is that scars or any other sort of types of acquired differences, they really sort of tell the map, maps of our lives. And by the age of 11, I received all my scars, but I only started getting them when I was eight. But they really started from the moment I was born because I was born in uh, with heart defects. If I was born in the West with the same condition, I would be fine. I would just have a quick surgery. Well, it won't be that quick. It would be open heart surgery, but it won't be a huge deal. I would have a surgery and would be fine. And that would be the end of the story, probably. I would have a, one fine scar, maybe. Because I've seen lots of uh, people in the West now. I've met lots of people in the West with similar conditions like mine. But I was born in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. And at that time in the Soviet Union... And science was really big. A lot of money went into science, any type of research, scientific research, but mostly into the kind of research that glorified the state, like, you know, uh, space science or um, theoretical physics, which is what my father does, actually. But the impact, because uh, the Soviet Union wanted to glorify the state, but the practical implications of this amazing research that was done were almost non-existent. So in the hospitals in the Soviet Union of the 1970s and 1980s, when I grew up there, um, there were not many, it was very hard to find clean towels or clean gowns. Even harder was to find uh, sober stuff. 
everybody smelled of something, beer or wine, or if there were surgeons, maybe sh uh, champagne, but everybody drank there. Uh, and there was no sort of good machinery or anything like this. So even with very simple surgeries, you had, you had a very good chance to not to come through alive. And so the doctors decided that they're not going to operate on me until I was eight, because I needed to be much stronger than if I was in the West to sort of go through the surgery. And so until I was eight, uh, my parents weren't sure if I would live or die. And so I grew up basically from very, very young age, uh, from about three or four, I already understood uh, this, uh, this, well, I thought I understood this concept of mortality. I, so I grew up really sort of with this heightened sense of mortality and my scars now, they're kind of a reminder of that thing. So the, in my scars, there's this child in me as well in some ways. But the story gets a bit more interesting when I actually go into the hospital. So, and this is again what my scars kind of tell about me. So at the age of eight, I was finally deemed as operable. And, but the, and then I went to Moscow to the best sort of cardiological um, hospital. And my parents, um, who had very little money, had to s uh, sell family jewelry to bribe the surgeon that was scheduled to operate on me not to do the operation because the surgeon's name was, nickname was the butcher. <laughs> so as you can, as you probably understand, not many patients sort of came alive from his you know, operations, but he had a brother in Kremlin. So <laughs> nobody could fire him. So my, my parents bribed him. I got another surgeon. I survived this, the operation. I was fine. And this is where the story gets a bit more complicated. So, and I'll just sort of jump ahead and say when I was 20, I wrote my first, I published, wrote and published my first novel, which was a big mistake. It was a very bad book. <laughs> Even my publisher said so. He said it, it was a novel, but it read like a diary, but he published it. <laughs> uh, there are no 20 year olds here. I'm looking at this side of the room. No, because if you're 20, don't write books yet. <laughs> but the book was called Surprise, Surprise, Scars. <laughs> and in this book, the reason I'm sort of now going on this tangent, I wrote the real story of how I got my scars. And when the editor was um, editing it, he said to me, you've got to change the story because it sounds too contrived. So it took me 25 years to write the, you know, the memoir where I can actually tell the story because it's a memoir, you know, it's clear it's not contrived, but this is what happened. So I survived that operation, which, you know, I didn't have that great chance of surviving. I was doing really well, recovering. I was 10 years old. Uh, sorry, so two years uh, later after operation, when I was 10, I was already really well, but I had a big sort of uh, sorrow in my life at that time. So I already knew I'm not going to die, but I was really pissed off most of the time because my parents overprotected me, understandably, you know. I would <laughs> uh, so I was not allowed to go anywhere by myself, not even sort of uh, to the neighboring street with my friends. And that was a huge so source of uh, sorrow for me and grudges and everything. And then one day, so I was 10, uh, my mother by then was pregnant heavily with my second brother because my parents wanted more children, but they didn't want to have more children until I recovered. So once I recovered, bang, 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 they had three brothers for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so by that time, <laughs> another source of grudge, but anyway. <laughs> Um, but when I was 10, so my mother was heavily pregnant, not feeling great. She wanted to make a cake. She said to me, Lubachka, which was my Russian name, would you mind going and get some sugar? She, 
And I could not believe my ears. That was like the sound of freedom. My mother actually wants me to go by myself, cross just one road, and buy sugar. That was just unheard of. <laughs> of course, I said, of course. <laughs> and then my mother said to me, well, Lubitschka, when you go, just make sure you look left, you look right, but it's a green light. I thought, well, I'm not, you know, five-year-old, I'm 10-year-old. Anyway, I went to buy sugar. It was a green light. I don't think I looked right or left because I was so excited, and a bus hit me. <laughs> So that, that's contrived, I think. It's not a very probable thing. So um, many more operations later. By the age of 11, I got all my scars. So as you can imagine, my scars were quite pivotal to my story, but I was hearing everywhere these sort of ideas that all bodies are the same and beauty is skin deep. So, but that, that's one thing. But why did I actually want to write this book? Why was it so important to me to sort of unpack this whole idea of the scars? So be mostly because of these two people here. The one person on the left is me <laughs> when I was 17. So as you can see, in this photo, I'm at the beach. And of course, I'm covered up. I'm totally dressed. So I had the fortune and misfortune for most of my life to, to be living in uh, hot, beachy cities. Uh, so when I was 12, we moved to Israel. And this is a little provincial town of Ashdod, where mostly populated by beauty queens and drug dealers and footballers. <laughs> so in this city, you could not not go to the beach because all the social life happened there. So what could I do? I didn't want to show my scars because by that time I already had the taste of being bullied and I didn't want to be different and I wanted to be pretty and I wanted to appeal, appeal to the boys, appeal to the boys. So I adopted this persona of a hippie. This is another way how our body can shape how we, we live. So, because, you know, hippie clothes cover the scars and they kind of, but a little bit of an explanation. But anyway, um, when I was growing up, the point of this picture is, when I was growing up with my scars, I felt profoundly, profoundly different from everybody. It was, I'm going to say something that may sound hyperbolic. And now that I'm 47 almost, it sounds to me hyperbolic too, but it was real to me for many, many years. I felt as if I was not quite human because I appeared, in my view then, human with my clothes on, but as soon as I took them off, they, my body just looked like a body I've never seen before. Now, this, this feeling built gradually. It didn't come to me straight away. Um, when I was living in Russia... When I was already, when I already had my scars, it felt not as alienating yet. It's not because Russia is good and West is bad, totally not like this. In fact, uh, Russia, had, <laughs> Soviet Union, there were so many problems. But with the bodies, when it came to the body, it was a bit different because in Russia, everybody's body was very imperfect. <laughs> People, you know, drank there, drink there, drank there a lot. They do now too, but I'll speak in the past because I've never been in, to Russia back since I left it at 12. So people drank a lot. The working days were very long. The nutrition was poor. There was lots of fist fighting, domestic violence. Everybody had missing teeth or pouches or, you know, the bodies were really battered. Even our celebrities, you know, the footballers, the actresses, they were all, uh, you know, their standards of bikini were not our standards of bikini, let's say it this way. Um, so I didn't feel that different. And... I used to, I remember when I was 11, 12, when I was still in, in Russia, um, I was quite lonely because I, of all my hospitalizations, I didn't go much to school, so I would sit in a park 
and I would fling my leg like this, my left leg, which is the most scarred part of my body, and strangers, as they do in Russia, would stop by me and say, oh, what happened to you? Tell us. And I would tell them my story about the hospitals and the butcher and many other stories I haven't told you now. And, you know, I'll get my attention. It was nice. <laughs> and then when we migrated to Israel, now it's not just about what Israel was already then becoming a more Western country, McDonald's and high rises were sort of being built. It was dead. But also, you know, I was already becoming a teenager. I was 12. I'm suspecting Russia, it would have not have been so easy for me either if I haven't left uh, by then. But when I, when I arrived in Israel, I started new school. I didn't speak Hebrew very well yet. And I thought, well, how am I going to make friends? Well, I've got my method. <laughs> didn't know very well. <laughs> which is when I started covering. <laughs> um, and so I can't, and, and sort of as I went through my adolescence, the reason I felt increasingly as I, as well as I was less than a human was because uh, I just didn't see anybody else who looked like me. It's not that I expect everybody to have lots of scars, but I just didn't see any scars at all, especially not on young women. And now that I've done so much research and I thought about it and I interviewed people all around Australia and overseas as well, now I understand that we, other people were just doing what I was doing. They were hiding. But I didn't know that. So I didn't have any sort of role models around me to, to see that you can have scars, but you can also have a good life or you can also be attractive. There was real, and I created this silence, but also the, about my scars, but there was also real silence about, around me. So I've always wanted to write this book because it was a way of kind of not being alone, sort of coming out there and saying, well, look, you know, I've got scars. What do you have? Tell me. But of course, being brought up in being sort of, uh, you know, wanting to appear attractive and being so used to not revealing my scars at all. Um, of course, I also didn't want to reveal my scars. So I had this sort of um, struggle in myself. Do I tell? Do I not tell? Etc. Etc. Uh, that's why I was dancing around my subject so much. I wrote that novel, that fictionalized account at 20, and then I did my PhD in my early 30s about experiences of, non, of women with non-facial scars. So once again, I was dancing around my topic, but it wasn't what I really wanted to write. But things changed <laughs> about four and a half years ago when I was giving birth to my second child. And don't worry, this is not a gruesome story. <laughs> There's no blood or anything graphic there. <laughs> There's only a curtain. So I was having it by C-section. As some, as some of you may know, when you have it by C-section, you actually don't see the baby straight away when he comes out because you've got the curtain. So, so they took the baby out. I heard him cry. And then everybody in the, all the medical staff in the room, and my husband as well, everybody laughed. Now, I was on drugs, so I wasn't thinking straight. I was thinking, oh, great, they're just as happy as me, but he is out, finally. <laughs> but when, then they brought him to me, I realized what happened, why they laughed. Because as you may know, when babies are born, they usually have either no hair at all, they're very little, which is how my first son came out, or they have a lot of dark hair. But my baby came out with a lot of almost white hair. And I thought, great, he's special. And he is, <laughs> well, as, as I was saying very objectively. But then we started starting noticing that his eyes were making this sort of movement a lot in the first few months, like this, sort of swinging from side to side. Um, and that, so we took him to the doctor, and the doctor diagnosed him with albinism. If you, some of you may know that albinism, it's not just a different appearance, but it's also um, low vision. 
Now, there's a continuum in this condition, and because Oli is not uh, on the low side of the continuum, as you can see, he just looks like a fair, fair-haired child. He doesn't have the snow-white hair, but he does a visible difference, like I do. But he just can, but he cannot cover his. So his eyes, which is the swinging eyes, or some call them poetically dancing eyes. Um, it's called nystagmus, it's related condition to albinism. So that's sort of his, what I call ironically, of course, imperfection to bear. So when he was born, I just thought, well, I was dealing with his diagnosis and I thought, okay, so I've got difference that I can cover if I choose to, and it does me lots of harm, but at least I have a choice. He doesn't have any choice. So what is his life going to be like? So time I got my excuse me sheet together and wrote the book. So this is sort of what really propelled me because I wanted to get out there and talk about what it means to have uh, appearance. Because by the time, and the reason I say appearance and not difference or imperfection or whatever is because I ended up writing a book where I just was complete, very interested in any type of appearance, how it can affect us. So I interviewed a lot of people in this book who are different from what we call the norm. And again, norm is a changing thing, so that's why I'm doing it like this. But I also interviewed people who are very beautiful. And I also spoke to people who have red hair or some other kind of ordinary things that uh, do extraordinary things to their character or to how they live their lives. I want to talk a little bit about gender, especially with its International Women's Day soon. Now, the book is not all about scars. In the book, I, I mean, I'm talking to people, as I was saying, beautiful people, people who are larger than norm. I call them not large, but larger, because again, norms change all the time in our society about weight. My mother could get away with bikinis in the Soviet Union, but she can't get away with this in, uh, in uh, New York, where she lives now. Uh, she's a quite large woman. So I spoke to people with dwarfism. I spoke to people with all, everything, but I just wanted to take scars as an example of how the norms, when it comes to visible difference, how the norms sort of differ between genders. But almost everything I'll say about scars is uh, relevant to any other type of appearance that I researched. I sort of wanted, was very interested especially to see how we, what kind of stories we tell about people with scars in popular culture. And first of all, we hardly ever tell stories about people with scars or with other mutilations, such as missing limbs or anything like that. And when we do tell the stories, more often than not, we use scars as a shortcut to differentiate between the good guys and the bad guys. And this is something particularly visible in comics. Because, you know, the baddies in comics, they have, you know, it, look, that's why I put the Joker here, because also the research shows that in the last 50 years in comics, the villains are getting increasingly more and more disfigured. Uh, so, scars is, so, and, and I think this sort of attitude to see people with scars as the baddies um, goes back, way, way, way back to Plato, whom I mentioned at the start today. Uh, because Plato said that um, what is beautiful is holy, is divine, and what is ugly is the opposite of divine. But the way he framed the beauty, what Plato thought was a beautiful body, is the kind of body which is very rare to find in real life. It's a body which is completely whole, 
W-H-O-L-E, if my accent is. Um, so it's a body not disrupted by life, no scars, no moles even, no, 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 no wrinkles, no cellulitis, you know. That's the kind of body that was beautiful according to Plato. And so what happened in, in Western history, often people who were considered to be sinners, transgressors, would be punished, and part of the punishment would be disfiguring them. So it, it went on until Renaissance times. Even in Renaissance times, in England, for example, you could, be, you could have your ears cut off for such a minor, well, such a grave offense, according to England in that time, for such an offense as not attending the church frequently enough. And I think this, and the reason that people were mutilated as part of the punishment, I argue, is platonic. It was not just to punish them, but it's also to help society to know, oh, if you're coming across this person, this person's bad, don't go near them. So it kind of helped us to differentiate. You know, sex workers were branded routinely in, across different Western cultures. Um, so, so, the, so we do this in popular culture today as well, but we also have another type of narratives we tell about people with scars or other visible differences, and this is of uh, tragic people. So somebody loses a limb, like, you know, like in Forrest Gump, you know, the Lieutenant Dan, the soldier, the noble soldier, he loses his legs and then he starts drinking and he retires from society and his life is ruined. We have lots of stories like this. John Marsden wrote a novel like this. this I mean, this whole sort of stories. And if you look back to the baddies, there's a whole sort of tradition of, um, you know, Nazi characters with scarred faces. But then what I noticed is that for women, it's a bit different. So women, if they have scars or if they have limb mis limbs missing, it's usually not that they something bad happened to them or and then their life became bad or they are the baddies. It, it, it always shows that they were victims even before the scars. So if, if a woman had a scar, it's because... She was, for example, sex worker, and so her clients disfigured her. So this whole, you can see picture there, there's a whole sort of tradition of um, women being disfigured by their clients or, or lovers disfigure them. So they may be not bad girls themselves, but they don't know how to choose their lovers. Or it's from self-harm. But for men, there is a, if the scars are not too, too severe, there is a window, a narrow window of having sexy scars. Women don't have that. So have you watched Outlander? So the heartthrob of the series, Jamie, very handsome man indeed, just <laughs> up there. <laughs> he did something very noble. He tried to, um, you know, save his sister from rape. He withstood a very terrible weeping with uh, honorably and so he has ropey scars on his back but he's still very very handsome and attractive and women love him and he gets all the girls <laughs> or the main girl um so so men do have this sort of an Tarzan movie you know the the wild scars so because we kind of we associate of course uh, adventure and nobility and saving people with men more than with women and the reason it's important to talk about these things is because these attitudes, they don't stay in the movies or books. They trickle into real life. And when I said to you earlier when I, that when I was um, a teenager and I didn't see any role models around me of beautiful women who can have attractive women, who can have scars, or women who are not maybe not that attractive but live good life and happy, 
I lied to you a little bit for the effect of storytelling. <laughs> I did know about two women, but they were not exactly role models. So did you know that uh, Sharon Stone, the actress, and Catherine Zeta-Jones have scars? Nobody knows, that's the whole point. It took me a lot of research to find out. They both also happen to have identical scars just across their neck, just from some surgery where they did medical surgery. But nobody knows because these women, these actresses, they always routinely cover their scars. It's a very, very fine scar what each of them has. But they, as you can see, Sharon Stone here, she often would be with halter top or will have a jewelry. Catherine Zeta-Jones, exactly the same. Or they would have a scarf or hair will be arranged, something like that. So when I was growing up, I just knew about these two women. I was thinking, wow, if these goddesses, these beautiful, beautiful women who have just one fine scar go into such lengths to conceal it, what chance do I have? So it's a very, very interesting sort of um, way how we tell stories. But to, to sort of put a positive spin on this, I think things change a little bit better. And if you look at Game of Thrones... Uh, there is a really great representation there of a man with dwarfism, of a larger man called Sam, if you watch, watch Game of Thrones, and a man who is a burn survivor. I just want now to see women represented like this. But anyway, we'll, we'll get there. So, so in one of the interviews, I actually was asked a really fantastic question recently, which is this. If you could go back in time, what would you tell your teenage self? So I'm stealing the question. <laughs> um, and one of the biggest things for me was my wrestling as I was growing up and as I was writing this book with the concept of body image. So I have a problem with, body, with, with the fact that when we talk about appearance and how it affects us, we mostly use the words body image. This body image journals, body image experts, body image psychologists, body image everything, you know. Um, and this is because when we talk about body image, we talk about only one aspect of what it means to have appearance, any kind of appearance. It's all about how we feel about ourselves. That's really what all body image means. So we talk about people having good body image, bad body image, you know. Um, but, and, and it's important to talk about it because I think who we are very much impact how we feel about ourselves. But we talk about only about it, and that's where my problem is, because really, um, the way appearance affects us, it's not just our psychological makeup and how we deal with this, but it's actually how society responds to us. We are social animals. We're not living on the top of mountain as Leonard Cohen once did. Um, and I, one of the chapters in my book, which is most significant to me personally, was the chapter was where I was interviewing a woman who has dwarfism, and she also has a child with dwarfism. And it, this interview meant to me a lot on different levels, because also I'm thinking about my child and how it will be for him to go to school, having his condition. Um, but one of the reasons why this interview meant so much to me, and it has the whole chapter in the book, is because Mia, the, the woman I with dwarfism, spoke really eloquently about this idea of body image and she said to me look I feel all this pressure to be like to feel like think like this about myself and to think like this about myself and I can say to myself all day long looking in the mirror I'm beautiful as I am I'm you know and all this but when she goes out on the street people throw bottles at her people come to her and try to pick her up we don't even do this to children you know as if she was a child uh, and here's my own prejudice. When she told me this, I said to her, what? People throw bottles at you and try to pick you up? That must be men. And she said to me, no, nah, half and half. 
So, so she said to me, well, I can say to myself whatever I want to say, but when I go out, you know, I, how can I keep it in my mind? So the reason I actually wrote this book was because I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit and start talking about not how we feel about ourselves, but how, uh, how we feel about others. What is it that we read into other people's bodies? Now, I really much hope so, but the, it doesn't come across in the book from a preachy position. I wasn't like wagging my finger and saying, I know, well, you don't know, and I'll tell you what you think. Not at all. I've got my prejudices. And whoever I, sp and I talk about this in the book, and whoever I spoke to in the book, people with their own differences, everybody have their own prejudices. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, in fact, very funny, I'll just tell, tell you quickly this story, but one of the chapters in the book is about extreme body modifiers. Now, when I say extreme body modifiers, I'm not talking about people with tattoos, and I'm not talking about people with lots of tattoos, and I'm not talking about people with lots of tattoos and lots of piercings. I'm talking about people who actually really transform themselves by implanting horns, uh, mechanical tails, um, all sorts of things, putting Pokemon balls under their arm, a skin, things like that, uh, replacing healthy teeth with gold teeth, etc., etc. So I hang out, hang out a lot with extreme body modifiers because, particularly because I was thinking, as I was researching, was thinking, well, I spent all this time were feeling bad about my scars. And here's this group of people, and extreme modification is still a very small minority, but it's on the rise. And I was thinking, what's happening there? Like, why people want to transform themselves into what society sees as imperfect? And are they happy like this? And if they are, some of them at least, what can I learn from them? And I did learn some things. But anyway, that's, that's not what I want to talk about, what I learned. What I wanted to say is that even when I hang out with body modifier, extreme body modifiers, and I interviewed the, the most extremely modified woman in Australia. I interviewed internationally renowned body extreme body modification artist who does surgeries without anesthetic. You, you won't, and injects t uh, ink into people's eyeballs. <laughs> it's irreversible procedure. Anyway, even they had their own very strong prejudices. So, for example, this extreme body modification artist said to me, well, I don't see what's wrong with a person wanting to be a dragon, you know? A lot of women do surgery to look like Kim Kardashian. I would rather look like a dragon than Kim Kardashian. <laughs> no, he said, sorry, I would rather see somebody looking as, as dragon than Kim Kardashian. So he had his own prejudices, you know. <laughs> but, but the reason I was sort of talking about this is that to say, I really, we are humans. We, we not, we, we mammals. We gather information based on sight. It's one of our primary senses. We cannot survive in this world without you know, judging. But so what I was sort of trying to say in this book is not let's not judge anybody because that's impossible and we won't survive. But I was saying let's try to go for informed judging. Let's try to think what is behind how we read bodies. And that's really what sort of the essence of the book is about. And that's why um, one of the points that I wanted to tell to my teenage self, and this is, what, and I'll stop there and let you ask questions, was... Give yourself permission to cry and do this as loudly as you wish. And this is because we, because with our emphasis on body image, we so much expect women and men as well increasingly to say, I love my body, I'm perfect as I am, I'm this, I'm that, when we actually don't feel like this. But we ended up living in a society where on one hand there's a huge pressure on girls and women to look the best they can. 
On the other side, there's a huge pressure on us to show as if we don't care. So we can't win, really. So for years and years, I felt bad about my scars and felt even worse that I was feeling bad about them. Do you know, the, see the paradox? And writing this book was really good for me. That's what I couldn't say on the television so quickly. But what I wanted to say when that person asked me, so now or told me, now you accept your scars. I don't accept my scars completely. It's still a work in progress. But I think self-acceptance is always a work in progress, whether it's bodily self-acceptance or in any other way. I used to work as a therapist, and I've seen a lot of it, and I've thought a lot about it. I did a lot of my own work. And I really think, I think about self-acceptance as a verb, not as a noun. We self-accepting its ebbs and flows, depends on what else goes in our lives. So the reason, so I think women today need to have this permission often to grieve before they start accepting themselves. And I think we're jumping, we sort of, it's a bit like if you lost somebody, if you lost your loved one and you're suffering from bereavement, what counselor, and if somebody will do it, they should be sued, what counselor will tell you get over it? You have to see through this, you have to unpack your grief, and sometimes you never get over, and that's fine. You can still live a satisfying life. But bodily grief, if you sort of do some research, it's a very, very strong emotion. Um, and I think in our society, we forget to give ourselves and others a slack and to let ourselves to grieve. So paradoxically, the more I let myself express my negative feelings, the more I kind of better felt really, which is a funny thing, isn't it? I think I'll stop here and I'd love to hear other questions from you. If you want to share something about your own bodies will be how they shape you would be great. Why do some people go to extreme lengths to modify their bodies? So there's lots of different reasons behind body modification generally, even before we go to extreme body modification. And when I was researching extreme body modification, most of the people said to be fixed but did not satisfy me. <laughs> there was a lot of cliches going around, and they reflected the cliches that people say about body modification in the media as well. They sort of kept saying things like, my body is my can canvas and I'm an artist. I'm making myself into beautiful and my beauty is, this is what I find beautiful. But my real question was, why? What, wh why do you you is, you know, whoever it is, uh, the body modifier, why do you have such a different, radically different view of beauty? You know, you know some people transform themselves into tigers, etc. And to answer your question, I mean, I wrote two chapters to try and answer this question, so I can't answer it very succinctly, but I'll try to say it generally that my sense was eventually that such a radical transformation, if you don't do it for because you're mentally unwell or you have body, you know, body dysmorphia disorder or something like this, if you're not doing this for those reasons, it's often an act of radical transformation because these days, <laughs> it's again, it's so hard to summarize, but I just it's big ideas, but very briefly I say, in our days, which are not as much more secular than they used to be, we don't have God. So when we want to change, body is often our resort. That's why we see so many tattoos around as well. For some people to transform the body, they needed to transform the body to do a really radical change. It's about reinvention. A lot of people said to me, the modifiers, we're doing it because we want to express who we are inside. I did not buy it. <laughs> I think they were doing, many of them were doing it because they want to be somebody else. And I'll give you one example, concrete example of what I mean. 
that was the case that really interested me. So there was a woman, there is a woman, sounds like Homer, like a, once upon a time, <laughs> but there is a woman in Mexico now known as the vampire woman. She's one of the most modified women in the world, or maybe the most modified woman in the world. She looks like a vampire. She's a lawyer with four children. She had those children before she did this transformation. And if you think she is now that she's a vampire, if you think she is doing some outrageous things and tries to bite people in the street, you will be very surprised because what she does now, she first of all, she became a bit of a celebrity. She tours a lot around the world, but she uses her celebrity and she raises her children. She has a new husband now who is looks a bit like a vampire too <laughs> but, but what she does with her celebrity she campaigns um, mostly she uses her legal skills and her status now to campaign for against domestic violence because she was a victim of domestic violence for 10 years she lived for horrific times and in Mexico, especially in, in the town where she lived, the, the rates were really high. And so when she left her husband finally, when she managed to take all her children and leave the husband, all four children from that, rela that mar first marriage, she decided she's going to be a vampire woman. She's going to be somebody else. She wanted to leave the submissive, well, what she saw, you know, a submissive self behind. She decided to undergo implantation of her horns without an aesthetic because she wanted to show herself that she's powerful. And that was, so she wanted to basically, the way I understand this, the way I frame it, she wanted to transcend her younger self. That was Dr. Lee Kaufman speaking about her latest book, Imperfect, How Our Bodies Shape the People We Become. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust run regular author talks at Fitzroy Library and the Fitzroy Town Hall. So please keep an eye on our website for those events and our podcast channel for more great Ewing Trust recordings. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd recommend Jane Gilmore speaking about the way violence against women is portrayed in the media, Sam George Allen on women working together, and Dr Claire Wright on women's suffrage in Australia. You can find all those episodes on our SoundCloud or wherever you found this episode. Want to hear more? Don't forget to rate, share and subscribe what you enjoy. It helps the whole Yarra community access events they might not be able to make it to in person. Until next time, Yarra Libraries promises that though you can't come and see us right now, we're, we're still here. We're on your phone, we're on your computer, we're in your binge bundles, we're in your living room. Not in a creepy way, we promise. Anyway, we're still here. Get in touch to see how we can help you access your library from home. See you next time. <laughs>